with you. And I want to thank those of you who greeted us already this morning. You've, you've been a great help by giving us uh, your names. A number of you walked up and said your names. I was just about to call Larry Mix Wilbur Blitzwick, and he gave me his name, and it saved me a great embarrassment, so I do appreciate that. We have been blessed to be in almost a dozen churches in as many years now, the past 12 years, so uh, we have many faces, lots of great stories uh, from our times ministering in a variety of churches. The one thing that seems to get confused are names. We look at you and we can remember even events, conversations we've had with you some years ago, but we can't remember your name. Have you ever had that occasion? So you uh, can help us by referring to yourself by your name, if you will. I just appreciate so much, Pastor Jeff. I'm going to say a little bit more of that in a moment, but uh, I trust that during this time that he's on sabbatical that you're just going to be remembering him in prayer. I had the privilege of having one sabbatical in my pastoral years. It was really important. I didn't know it was going to be. In fact, I kept telling my elders, no, I don't need a sabbatical. And they kind of forced it on me. And I said, well, okay. And when I came back, I was full of thanks to them and to the Lord for what proved to be a, a very important time in uh, my own personal growth and development for future ministry. So keep him in your prayers. Pray that God will use this time in a very special way in Pastor Jeff's life. Our passage this morning is from Luke, Luke's Gospel. I think you've been in Luke for a while, haven't you? We're going to stay there over these next eight weeks. Luke 9 this morning, beginning at verse 46 and reading through to the end of the chapter. Then there was an argument among them as to which of them would be the greatest. But Jesus knew their thoughts. So he brought a little child to his side and he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons. We tried to stop him because he isn't in our group. But Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. As the time drew near for his return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But they were turned away. The people of the village refused to have anything to do with Jesus because he had resolved to go to Jerusalem. When James and John heard about it, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we order down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. As they were working along, walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you no matter where you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but I, the son of man, have no home of my own, not even a place to lay my head. He said to another person, Come, be my disciple. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. And Jesus replied, let those who are spiritually dead care for their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the coming of the kingdom of God. 
And others said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Very diverse paragraphs, aren't they? But I want to suggest to you this morning that there is a theme, there is an approach that Luke seems to be intent on setting out before us. And I hope we can find our way through these different paragraphs. From time to time, by the way, Pastor Jeff and I do get together and talk about a variety of things. And about a year ago, as we were just chatting on a number of different subjects, he said to me, if I get a sabbatical, I wonder if you would be willing to fill the pulpit for me. And it was during that time when I agreed to do so that the plans for this, this time, this day, actually began to take shape. At Jeff's request, I've chosen to spend the next few Sundays with you looking at the opening chapters of Christ's journey to the cross as recorded in Luke's gospel. Now, Luke does not take a chronological approach, nor is it geographical. He moves Jesus around from place to place. But rather, his approach is thematic, as though Luke is following the thoughts and the teachings, the themes of Christ on his way to the cross, rather than his GPS. To call our attention to this significant turning point in Christ's earthly ministry, Luke announces in verse 55, as the time drew near for his return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. There's nothing new here. Uh, Jesus has always been moving towards Jerusalem. He has always, from the inception of his ministry, been moving toward the cross and toward his return to his heavenly Father. What is new is the level of his resolve. The New Living Translation, which we're working from this morning, says Jesus resolutely set out. King James said... He steadfastly set his face. The Anchor Bible says he stiffened his face. Lenski in his commentary says he set his face firmly. And Marshall says he turned and fixed his gaze. Uh, to modern day parlance or in modern day parlance, it's like saying he doubled down. Jesus said what we've been about and what I've been about, we're taking it with all due seriousness now. What had been his purpose and his intent from the beginning of his earthly ministry now became a burning passion and a fixed resolve. And nothing, absolutely nothing, would be permitted to stand between him and the cross, between him and his return to the throne of Father God. Christ is now focused 100% on finishing the Father's plan for our salvation and then returning to glory. But there is still a vital, critical bit of work to be accomplished before he leaves planet earth. You say, what work? What, what does he still have to do? Well, of course, there's the work of Calvary, and there's the work of the resurrection. But there is also the work of preparing, training his disciples to carry on his work in his absence. Soon he's going to be returning to the Father, but the work he's about to accomplish at Calvary must not come to an end with his death and ascension. Hundreds, Thousands of years of church history depend on the faithful service, the follow-up of his disciples. And so it should be no surprise at all that what Jesus focuses on 
in the brief time that remains to him before he returns to the Father is the mentoring of his inner circle of disciples. On one hand, he doesn't need them to fulfill his mission to the world. Because as sovereign Lord of all that is, he can accomplish his eternal purpose, his eternal plan, in any manner that he chooses. But since he has chosen, since he has chosen to reach a, a lost world through those who will follow him, his disciples, their success is critical to the mission Father God has entrusted to him. And with this thought in mind, we turn our attention to Luke's record of Christ's teaching as he resolutely sets his face toward Jerusalem. And the first theme Luke addresses is Christ's teaching on how his disciples are to treat, how they are to respond to those they encounter along the way. We don't have time to look at all those various groups this morning, but four are brought to mind by Luke in the passage that we looked at this morning. As we would expect, Christ encourages his disciples to treat all alike with respect and compassion. But beyond this, the disciples' response is to be guided by the disposition toward Christ demonstrated by each and every individual or group they come across. Do they honor Christ? Do they oppose him? Do they express a desire to become one of his disciples? Is that desire sincere or not? In our text for this morning, Christ models the response that he desires his disciples to demonstrate in each of four different instances. The first two of these actually appear in the verses just preceding Luke's declaration that, that Christ is now setting his face fully toward the cross. In Luke 9, 46 through 48, we read the following words. Then there was an argument among them, the twelve, as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus knew their thoughts. Hard as it is to believe, the first group of folks the disciples must learn to respond to in a Christ-like fashion is their own brothers in ministry, the other members of the inner circle, some years ago, as I was talking with a, a missions director, director for a major missions outlet here in the United States, the question came up as to why a significant number of missionaries either return during their first mission or don't return to the field following it. He said to me, I think you would be surprised to know why, the number one reason why missionaries don't return to the field. I said, well... I have a number of thoughts in mind, but you tell me. Well, he said, the number one reason why missionaries don't return to the field or return prematurely is competition with their fellow missionaries. In these verses in front of us, Jesus teaches us how we should respond to those of our group who compete with us for spiritual superiority. And how we should deal with that own temptation in our hearts to compete with others in this matter of spiritual superiority for status or honor or position or representation. And what he tells his disciples and us about our response to those folks is that we should avoid at all cost getting caught up in any such contest. 
And calling a little child to his side, he tells him that God measures greatness not by power or rank or our reputation for spiritual wisdom, not by the size or the influence of our ministry or any other worldly standard, but by our service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. You may think at the outset that that's not really an issue for you, that that's not much of an issue for us as a church, as a people of God in this day, that we are not in the least tempted to enter into such a foolish contest over spiritual superiority. In actual fact, I submit to you that nearly every one of us will face that problem at one time or another. I was still in my first pastorate. In fact, I had just begun in North Hollywood, California, when a group of young pastors were called together by our, our DS, our district superintendent. We were fellows that had not met one another yet, but we'd, we'd all been in the ministry for about a year, maybe two years max, and we came together, and we began to talk about our ministries, and one shared all the good things that were happening in his ministry and what God was doing, and the next one shared. It just it was interesting as we went through, it kind of got bigger and bigger. Everybody had a better story to tell until finally it got to me, and to my shame, I followed suit. And I was so disgusted with myself as I reflected on that event, I actually avoided going back to those kinds of pastoral gatherings for several years. I was embarrassed by what I had done, by what we'd gotten caught up in. You see, our response to those who wish to show their spiritual superiority over us by references to the growth of their church or the notoriety of their pastor or their reputation in the community, or some special experience they've had with the Holy Spirit. Our response to this should first be to swallow our pride, our spiritual pride, and then to ask God for the grace to serve them, to serve them. I want to make a personal observation, just something that I I reflected on during this past week as I thought about this. And it has to do with my own, my own failures in this area, if you will. Over the years in ministry, I have on several occasions, notable occasions, been granted close-up access to the lives of folks whose spirituality I had deemed to be shallow or compromised by some practice that uh, I found to be unsavory, only to discover that their heart for Christ and their service to his church and to to the unlovely of our society put me to shame. I remember, again, it was in North Hollywood, California, that there was a gentleman in our congregation, Chuck. I'll just call him Chuck. And Chuck came to us rather rather late in ministry. I'd been there about four years, and he came, became a part of our congregation. Chuck was a World War II uh, bombardier. He had lived a very rough life, and in his late 50s had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He had all the excitement of a new believer, but he didn't have some of the finesse. And so at times the staff, myself included, kind of found poor Chuck humorous. We'd we'd have a good laugh at Chuck because Chuck was the one who would come to me after services and say to me in the foyer while my elders and others were watching on, Pastor, that was one blankety-blank sermon. What you're telling us is if we could just learn to keep our blankety-blank out of that, God could do his blankety-blank business. It seemed like every part of Chuck had been converted 
turned around except for his language. And for some reason, it was his battlefield. And I remember, we used to think, poor Chuck, you know, could any good thing come of Chuck? And then Chuck and his dear wife invited Sherry and me to their, their condominium for supper. We had a lovely supper, and then Chuck said to me, Pastor, let's take a walk. I said, sure. Walked out the door, and you know, condominium, you're, just, you're in a hallway, and you can walk up and down this particular one. It was just doorways along the hallway, and we started walking down. And as we came to each door, Chuck would stop, and he would tell me the story of the person or the family behind that door. And then with tears streaming down his face, he would pray for their salvation. And after we'd done that for about 15 minutes, I had a very different view of Chuck. And I was chastened to ask myself if my heart for the lost was anything, anything that even approached Chuck's heart for Christ and for the lost. Our response to those who would like to set themselves up as spiritually superior to us and our response to our own temptation to see ourselves as spiritually superior to our brothers and sisters in Christ must be to confess this spirit of competition as sin. That's what it is. And instead to choose a path of service. Well, next, Luke records an incident used by Jesus to teach his followers how to respond to believers who are not part of our group. Verses 49 and 50, we read these words. Then, Jesus said, or then John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons. Imagine that. We tried to stop him because he's not of our group. But Jesus said, don't stop him. For anyone who is not against you is for you. There's several things that I think we need to point out in order to rightly understand our Lord's teaching here. First, the stranger who was casting out demons was doing so in Jesus' name. Second, it seems apparent from the text that he was succeeding in his efforts. Something which is notable since the twelve themselves had not always been successful in doing that. In fact, just a few verses back here in chapter 9, beginning at verse 37, we have an example of where the twelve could not cast out demons, even in Jesus' name. So it must have hurt to see someone else in another group accomplishing what they couldn't. Third, to the best of their knowledge, the twelve believed that the power and the authority to cast out demons had been given to them exclusively. We do read in Luke 9.1 that as our Lord sent them out, he sent them out with this commission to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. And they must have felt, we're special. Who gets to cast out demons? Certainly this, this approach must have created a certain amount of excitement in them. But now here they are. Here they are. Here's this man, a stranger, not one of their own, using their master's name to accomplish what they themselves have not recently been able to accomplish. Certainly somebody had to tell Jesus about this. This had to be stopped. But when they bring the news to Jesus, he is completely unruffled by it. In fact, he tells them they should stop interfering with a stranger. Anyone who is not against you 
is for you. Just with a simple little quote. There's no deep theological treatise on this. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, the man's theology is pretty close to accurate. He doesn't even get into that. He just says, you know, he's not for you. Or he's not against you. He's for you. He's with you. And given Jesus' response to the news of a stranger casting out demons in his name, I think we need to assume the following. On this occasion, the man in question was not guilty of using the name and the authority of our Lord as a blasphemy or out of ignorant or self-serving, in a self-serving manner, but was rather apparently a true follower of Christ and as such was not to be seen by the enemies as their disciple or, excuse me, as their enemy, nor as an enemy of Christ, but a fellow servant. I think Ray Summers uh, has rightly expressed the meaning of Christ's teaching here when he concludes in his commentary. This timeless warning is against refusal to recognize as genuine work for Christ, which is done by one who belongs to another company of followers. Whatever his label, if his work is for Christ, it's part of the same work every other worker is doing. Uh, Granted, it's not always immediately obvious whether the service being done in Christ's name is actually being done by his power and for his sake or out of impure motives and means. But I think that's all the more reason to be slow to censure them or speak poorly of them. In an age when there is a growing anti-Christ and anti-gospel sentiment in our nation and around the world, we'd be foolish to shoot our own messengers, of whom there are far too few. The counsel of the Apostle Paul comes to mind here. Remember what Paul had to say? He said, some are preaching the gospel out of jealousy and rivalry. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains even more painful to me. But whether or not their motives are pure... We might add whether or not their methods and theology are top drawer. The fact remains, said Paul, that the message about Christ is being preached. And so I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. What a vast difference between Paul's response and that of John and the Twelve. I rejoice and will continue to rejoice in them, says Paul. We tried to stop him because he's not part of our group, said John. Where does our Lord stand on this issue? Well, he says, don't stop him from ministering in my name just because he isn't of our little group. If he isn't against us, he's for us. I was reflecting this week on, on the response of the church, various aspects, arms of the church over the years to certain individuals who've been raised up for ministry. I think of whole denominations that decided they could not, would not support the ministry of Billy Graham. Because he didn't like the way he did certain things and because he didn't bear the same denominational name they had. And so they didn't care if he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't care if thousands were coming to Christ. He wasn't one of them. He wasn't one of their group. And they weren't going to support him. I remember hearing how how D.L. Moody, when he was ministering in a large campaign in London many, many years ago, of course, was confronted by a group of... Laymen from churches there in London 
who said to him, we don't, we don't do things this way. We don't do things the way you do. We don't like the way you present the claims of Christ. And the story goes that D.O. Moody said to them, well, how do you do it, sir? To which there was a lengthy silence and then some stammering. And then Moody said, well, sir, I rather like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it. (laughs) I grew up in a small Quaker church. On one side of town, on the far side of town, was a large, large Bible Baptist church. And uh, see, we were holiness people, so we knew we had it right. We not only had it right, we were living it right. Those people over there, they did lots of things we didn't agree with. It was known that some of those folks, well, I won't tell you, but you can just imagine. Of course, they were reaching hundreds and literally thousands with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were holding our own. Our favorite song was, Hold the Fort for I Am Coming. But they troubled us deeply because they weren't part of our group. Let me share a positive experience now. Turn on that, if you will. I remember uh, graduating from this little Quaker college back in Ohio and wanting to come to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. Wow. Big time. I just wasn't too sure they'd want me. After all, I'd been my whole life been a part of this little sect called Quakers. A lot of folks didn't even consider us a denomination or a legitimate Protestant group. Among other things, we didn't baptize, we didn't observe communion, we didn't do a lot of things. In fact, I may have shared with you in the past, our whole idea of how we were going to get to heaven was by the things we didn't do. And so we had a rather long list of things we didn't do. And I came to Trinity Evangelical Seminary wondering, would there be a place for me, would would anyone accept the fact that God was working in my life, was calling me into ministry? I was still wrestling with these issues, how I was going to respond myself. I remember the graciousness of God's people, these Swedes and Norwegians, who didn't know much about German Quakers. You couldn't imagine that I might be heading toward the ministry and having not yet been baptized. And yet it was their gracious response and their willingness to teach me and instruct me and lead me, permitted me these years in ministry. Now we come to a third group of folks that we, we will inevitably meet on our journey through this lifetime. More and more of them today, by the way. Those who want nothing to do with our Jesus. And once again, Luke's burden is to show us how we should respond to such people. In verses 51 through 56, we read as follows. As the time drew near for his return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But they turned him away. The people of the village refused to have anything to do with Jesus because he had resolved to go up to Jerusalem. And then John and James heard about it. And they said to Jesus, Lord, should we order down heaven for (laughs) a carry out, an order out? Should we order out fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And so they went to another village. What's apparent from the text is that as Jesus headed for Galilee, from Galilee toward Jerusalem, he came to the border of Samaria. And as was a custom of pilgrims from the north country, 
He intended to take the shorter route which would take him through Samaria. However, he and his entourage were denied passage by the residents of a particular Samaritan village. Now just why passage was denied him, we can't be sure. We know that many pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem used this same route in spite of the long-term political and religious differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. So it was conceivable that Jesus approached this saying, well, certainly will be received as well. But whatever the reason, the folks in this village stoutly refused Jesus and his disciples lodging or passage through their village. We're not just sure exactly what they were asking of them, but they were refused. And when James and John heard about the Samaritans' refusal to host Jesus in their village, they came to Jesus with a proposal. Lord, they said, should we order down fire from heaven to burn them up? (laughs) This was consistent with their reputation. It was consistent with a, a little name they'd been given. Jesus had referred to them as the sons of thunder. It was consistent with the Jewish hatred of the Samaritans in that day. It was consistent with the precedent that had been set by the prophet Elijah, who had once called down fire on the messengers of a wicked king, Ahaziah. Unfortunately, the proposal set before Christ by his disciples tells us a good deal about their chosen method of responding to those who oppose their master. And unfortunately, it's reminiscent of the way in which the church has sometimes responded to her enemies down through the ages. Sad but true, when over the centuries the church has been in a position of power, she has often been as ruthless in her response to those who opposed her and her Christ as the world of unbelievers had been to her. Nor has the church in our own age fully escaped this idea that the best way to respond to the enemies of Christ is to do away with them, either figuratively or literally. I'm quite sure that few, if any of us here this morning, uh, would support blowing up abortion clinics or threatening the lives of godless liberal politicians or hurling firebombs at a gay parade. Though some in our day have chosen to do those things. But I also think probably more than a few of us, more than a few of us, feel justified in hating these enemies of Christ. In wishing them ill, rather than praying for their salvation. But what's most fascinating, and I think most informative about this incident recorded by Luke, is not the disciples' hatred of those who opposed them. Or even their, their proposal that they, by the way, notice, not Christ, should call down fire. They were all about power. They weren't so interested that Jesus should call down fire. They wanted to call down fire. But that's not the main thing I see here. What I see here is that the response of Christ is so very different and so very informative for us. In verse 55, we read very simply, Jesus turned and rebuked them. That's all it says. He turned And rebuked them. He simply focused his gaze on them. He turned from what he was doing. Looked them right in the eye. 
and he rebuked them. And the Greek word here is fascinating. It's the word to intimidate. I remember some years ago when our sons were home yet, and one of my sons, probably 16, 17 years of age, came to me and said, Dad, we need to talk. And I said, good, okay. Dad, he said, I don't know if you're aware of it, but sometimes you intimidate me. And I said, oh, thank God. I'm so glad to hear. I can't imagine a father-son relationship where a dad's, the weight of his responsibility and his role didn't somehow at some time intimidate his sons. Jesus looked them in the eye, and that gaze was intimidating. It said all he needed to say. And he rebuked them. And we don't know the words for that. Some manuscripts of Luke offer the words of Christ on this occasion. Some manuscripts actually give these as his words. You don't know what kind of a spirit you are. For the Son of Man came not to destroy the lives of men, but to save them. Now those are almost certainly... that, That expresses almost certainly the right attitude, the right heart of Christ on this occasion. But we simply don't have good... Manuscript for that. I think, though, there can be little question that they accurately explain the reasoning behind Jesus' response. Here he is. He's on his way up to Jerusalem to give his life in exchange for men and women like these very folks who are refusing him or opposing him. People who oppose him. People who show no interest in him or his message. And his disciples are suggesting that what he should do is burn them to a crisp and send them to hell. You can almost picture it that while Christ is praying for his enemies, offering forgiveness and life in paradise to the thief who's hanging on the cross, crying out to the Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Some of us would be thinking, if not saying, get them, God. Give them what they deserve. Many years ago now, I... A fellow by the name Bruce came to my office. He came drunk. He came with a stench of alcohol and sweat about him. He came dirty, missing half of his teeth. He came spewing profanities. Worse than all this was the reason he was there. He was uh, sexually abusing a little eight-year-old girl in our Sunday school. His daughter, by the way. And after years of this, he'd been caught. And now he's coming to me to ask me to be a character witness for him in court. And I will tell you, in all honesty, if I could have, if I could have called down fire on him that day, I would have. But here he was asking for my help, telling me that his wife had sent him to me with a clear instruction that he was to confess his sin and seek God's forgiveness. And he wanted to know, would I help him do that? And I remembered in that moment what my pastor, uh, my professor of pastoral duties had taught me in seminary. He said, never try to convert a drunk. He, he won't remember a thing that's happened. Just wait, wait till he's sober. But somehow I felt compelled. And so through clenched teeth, feeling nothing but hatred for this poor excuse of a human sitting in front of me, I dutifully recited the facts of the gospel. Facts of God's love and his forgiveness and his plan of salvation through the cross. I was in every, in every 
matter that had anything to do with that moment. I was Jonah, hoping to highest heaven that my audience would not repent, lest God would grant him grace, and I'd have to spend an eternity with this guy. That night, I, I went to bed feeling dirty and used. Did this pervert really expect me to be a character witness for him after all he'd done, really? And, and what did Christ expect of me? Next morning, the phone rang, and it was Bruce. He said, I need to see you. I need to see you now. He said, all right, all right. I'll be at the office in a half an hour. Bruce came by the office. He burst into the office saying, what happened yesterday? I said, well, man, you came in here drunk. You told me your sad story. And I shared with you God's way to forgiveness and a new life. He said, that must be it. I said, what must be it? He said, I can't remember the facts. All I know is that I went to bed last night, and I woke up this morning with a sense of freedom and forgiveness I never thought was possible. And I thought, this guy's really good. This is the best con artist I've ever met. But for the next three years, I watched as God fashioned Bruce into a new creation. A couple years later, when we left Southern California to come back to the Midwest, Bruce was there to say goodbye and assure me that Christ was still Lord of his life. Some years passed, maybe 10 years. I was trying to think last night. It must have been 9 or 10 years. From time to time, I'd think about Bruce. I'd wonder if I'd been played. I'd wonder if Bruce was sincere, and if he was, was he still serving the Lord? Was that possible? And the phone rang one day as I was in the office, and a voice on the other end said, Hi, it's Bruce. Just thought you'd like to know what God's been doing in my life. And he shared this incredible account of God's continuing forgiveness and grace. How he'd even been restored in fellowship with a daughter he had abused so often, so long ago. You say, what's the point? Just this. When along life's road, we come across those who are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Those who want nothing to do with him, who blaspheme him, who abuse him and his children. We've got to decide how to respond to them, don't we? And we can either see them as nothing more than fuel for the fires of hell. Or we can see them as those for whom Christ gave his life. I've been watching TV too, folks. And checking my own heart and my own mind on this account. Just one more group of folks that the disciples will meet along the way. And that's those who express a desire to follow Christ wherever he goes. Those who aspire to be part of his inner circle. 
verses 57 through 62, we can observe how Christ responded to these folks. And we can learn, as the twelve did, how we should respond to those who aspire to be in Christ's inner circle of disciples. Now, as, as I read the pertinent verses, and I'm going to in just a moment, keep in mind that the individuals being addressed by our Lord here are already his followers. That's how they happen to be there. The issue is, have they fully understood the conditions of discipleship? And if they have, are they really ready to embrace them? So we read, he said, he said uh, as they walked along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you no matter where you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but I, the Son of Man, have no home of my own, not even a place to lay my head. He said to another person, uh, another follower, come be my disciple. And the man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. And Jesus replied, let those who are spiritually dead care for their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the coming of the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. But first let me say goodbye to my family. Just say goodbye, that's all. But Jesus told him, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Well, in these verses, we have an account of three men, all of whom express the desire to become disciples of our Lord. And we have an account of Christ's response to each of these individuals. Note that Jesus' response to each shows that he knows the heart of each man. That is, he knows the specific issue which each of them must address if they are in fact to become a full follower of Jesus Christ. The first of the three professes that he's ready to follow Jesus no matter where he goes. But, but knowing his heart, Jesus confronts him with the truth about himself, the truth about his preparedness. Is he really prepared to give up the security of home and the comforts of home? Even foxes have dens, says Jesus, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no home, no place to lay his head. Implied, are you still ready to follow me? In the second instance, it's Jesus who initiates the discussion about discipleship. Verse 59, come, be my disciple. And the man readily agreed, but then said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. Now, Jesus' response to this simple and seemingly appropriate request is so harsh, isn't it? It seems so uncaring that it's had Bible commentaries or Bible commentators doing handstands for hundreds of years trying to know how to bring it across to us. Let those who are dead, spiritually dead, care for their own dead, he tells the man, your duty is to go and preach the coming of the kingdom of God. Perhaps, commentators suggest, the man's father had not died yet, wasn't even ill yet. Perhaps he still had many good years ahead of him, and the man in question is only using this request as a cover-up for his unwillingness, his unreadiness to step aside from other priorities in order to follow Jesus. What is clear is that Jesus, who knows the hearts of men, has, as, as with the first wannabe disciple, 
ascertain this man's real issue, namely a failure to settle the matter of his first and greatest loyalty. Those who have not heard the call of Christ to a life of discipleship, those designated here as the spiritually dead, they may follow the expectations of their age with regards to honoring family first. But the man or woman or the young person who aspires to be a disciple of Jesus Christ must stand ready to give Christ first place in every area of his life, even where family is concerned. Usually it doesn't happen in such a significant way, such a, such a total way, but it, it comes to us, this matter of, of, of responding to Christ in dealing with the family issue. I remember when, when Sherry and I got married and were praying about where God would have us go for seminary. And we told Sherry's family that we were going to go to Chicago so I could attend Trinity Seminary. And Sherry's daddy said to me, what, there are no Bible schools between here and Chicago? And then when we graduated from seminary and got the call to North Hollywood, California, and we told him where we were going, and he said, what, there are no churches between here and North Hollywood, California? In lesser but very real ways, we are faced with this question. Where is our ultimate loyalty? In verse 61, a third wannabe disciple hears the call of Christ and he responds, Yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And once again, the request made by this man seems entirely legitimate, even proper, and on the face of it, it is. Who would deny the appropriateness of a young missionary couple about to set out on their first assignment halfway around the world, taking the opportunity first to say goodbye to the parents and their siblings, once again, the gaze of Christ penetrates well beyond the obvious and the external to a deeper issue confronting this wannabe disciple. And using the image of a farmer who has set his hand to the plow and then continues to look back over his shoulder to where he has been rather than forward to God's calling on his life, Jesus announces such an approach to discipleship unfit. Interestingly, the word has no moral implication. It just means it doesn't work. Whatever you commit yourself to, whatever you devote yourself to in this life, that number one thing, if you keep looking over your shoulder, you're not going to get there, bub. And it's no different. It's no different with regards to the kingdom of heaven. No, the man or the woman who would be a disciple of Jesus Christ must give himself over to the practice followed by the Apostle Paul when he said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press forth toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Imagine for a moment that you were present to hear the three conversations between Christ and these wannabe disciples. Can you imagine not finding yourself instantly, seriously reflecting on your own level of commitment to Christ? I can't. In these three conversations, we're confronted with the most exacting standards for discipleship in all Scripture, I believe. I can only tell you that after 50 years in ministry, I still find the words of Christ in this passage extremely challenging, convicting. There is no doubt in my mind 
but that those in Christ's inner circle, those who heard his words on this occasion, were deeply convicted, even troubled by his exacting, uncompromising standards for discipleship. But now I want you to consider something else. I want you to consider with me the impact of these words of Christ on the twelve, twenty, thirty years later as the early church was experiencing rapid expansion and growth. Certainly, Christ's words on this occasion would still have significant personal application for each one of them. But there would be a new application as well. As men and women from many cultures and lands step forward to profess their desire to become disciples of the now ascended Christ, the response to wannabe disciples would no doubt influence their own response to these folks. In fact, Christ's response to would-be disciples, as recorded here in Luke 9, should still be informing the way we respond to those who step up today and say, I want to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And what was that response? What did Jesus say to these men who came to him? He, he did not, and I think it's important we recognize this. For years, I heard this passage taught as though this was Jesus saying to these men, forget it, Charlie. You've got to be kidding me. You don't even understand what this is all about. Not at all. There's no denial here. Jesus does not reject their request in spite of the fact that he saw them as less than ready at the moment. He spoke openly and honestly with them about the cost, the demands of discipleship. He pointed them to a specific area of spiritual growth that they had not yet addressed in their individual life. And he left the door open for them to grow and recommit and become more the man or woman that Christ wanted them to be. And once again, I suggested to you that we would do good to follow the example of our Lord when responding to such folks today. Now, if I were in our church in Crystal Lake about this point, the pastor would say, well, it's time that I land this plane. So let's land this plane. Come to the end of our passage and its teachings. There's a broader application of these verses, I think, for us, for you and me. First, Christ is very concerned about how his followers, how you and I, respond to those we meet along the way. Did you pick that up? He's very concerned. This is the first, this is the first teaching of Christ. As he heads for the cross, he begins to address with his disciples, how are you going to respond to individuals in this kind of a situation? How are you going to respond to people that are at this point? In their walk. Now, he can't deal with all the groups, but he, he makes a beginning, a starting of saying to them, This is critical. This is vital. How you respond to those you meet along the way is going to set a pattern. It's going to, it's going to say, in effect, This is what the Christian world is all about. This is what the church is about. This is the way God's people act under these circumstances. Here in Luke 9, he teaches us how we should respond in no less, than four different, no, no less than four different groups of people or four different circumstances. He said, when confronted by fellow believers who wish to compete with us for spiritual, spiritual priority, we should refuse the temptation to do so and should seek instead to serve them. Not to compete with them, but to serve them. 
Second, when our paths intersect with others who claim to be doing God's work but are not part of our group, we should thank God for them and pray for their success. As Paul said, so then whether they happen to be of good motives or impure motives, I rejoice in the fact that Christ is being preached. Third, when we come to face, face to face with those who oppose our Lord, as we do so often today, we should choose to see them not as the enemy, but as the mission field. Not as those that Christ would call down fire upon, but as those he died for and we should pray for. And finally, when approached by those who profess their desire to become followers of Jesus Christ, we should do nothing to discourage them, but we should help them grow in their understanding of what true discipleship really costs. And then we should challenge them to address the particular area of deficiency in their own spiritual walk and keep the door open so that they too might become full followers of Jesus Christ. Late at night, do you ever have a hymn or a chorus or something just kind of runs through your head? And um, Not often for me, because I was one of those people, I always loved the tune, could never remember the words. Couldn't remember the words. Loved the tunes, couldn't remember the words. But interestingly enough, this week the words came to me in a chorus that I learned as a child. We sang many times in our little Quaker church. Some of you will recall it, others will say, never heard that. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Remember that one? Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful power and purity. O thou spirit divine, all my nature refine. To the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Father God, it is in our relationships, in the way we respond to those we meet along the way, that the world comes to understand who our Jesus is. That's a wonderful but a scary thought. I pray, Father, that our natures might indeed be refined by your Spirit day by day so that we reflect the beauty, the honesty, the truth, the passion of our Savior for fellowship among the brothers and for witness to a lost world. Amen.